This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media Podcast about all things in print. Stuart in L.A. here. I was with you when we started this 007 literary adventure, back with Casino Royale, the first novel. Now I guess it makes sense that I should close it on out with The Man with the Golden Gun, Ian Fleming's last James Bond novel. Actually published eight months after his death. He died August 1964. It reached publication in April 1965. Debatable whether this is even a completed work. Fleming only had the chance to do one draft with some minimal editing. He did tell his publisher he didn't think this one was ready, that he wanted to spend more time and try to finesse it. I approached this with kid gloves. I think it's only fair to recognize that anything published posthumously probably does not have the finesse of an artist's greatest works. They just didn't have the time to shape the story as we might hope. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Man with the Golden Gun is not going to be one of my favorites, but it is the last one, and I think there's something always special about the last one. There can be more James Bond adventures, and other authors have tried, but this is the last Ian Fleming novel, and that just makes it special. I certainly would want to read it. I would hate to think that someone put it away on a shelf and said, well, he wasn't done with it, and no one ever got to know what he was thinking about as he closed out James Bond. I'd rather have an incomplete work than nothing at all. And it is a strange kind of irony that Fleming should die while he was bringing Bond back to life. If you had been following Brock for the past couple weeks, he covered the Blofeld trilogy. James Bond winded up taking out Blofeld in an island off Japan, but disappeared. The world, MI6, wrote his obituary. They had no idea that he had actually just suffered amnesia and now was a kept man to Kissy Suzuki. She was convincing him that he was now a Japanese fisherman married to her, and we didn't really know whether the world would ever see James Bond again. And I didn't read those novels. I heard them last week as Brock was explaining You Only Live Twice, but yeah, I did not know this, and so my basis for that is the movies. The movies didn't go that route. The last time I checked in with Bond, he was lecturing schoolgirls on mopeds not to worship dangerous men like him in that weird one-off Spy Who Loved Me novel. So this is a surprise to come back into this after taking a break and finding Bond arriving in London on a cold November day, calling up MI6 to announce that he's back, he's alive, going through an interrogation process, and then trying to assassinate M. Wow, this is a great opener. It's quite a hook into the story to find out that James Bond has been turned in the year that transpired between You Only Live Twice and this novel. That he journeyed to Vladivostok, fell under the command of a Colonel Boris KGB guy who warped his mind and turned him into the Manchurian candidate. And I do think this stuff is the best Fleming writing in the novel. It's a slow build. I know something is off about Bond, but it takes 20 pages to really figure out entirely what's going on here. There's these mentions of KGB and Colonel Boris, but hey, I didn't read the last couple novels. Maybe he was just a character that befriended Bond. I don't know. He is interrogated by Major Townsend, who more or less clears him. He looks right. He knows all the information. He called the right number, after all. But he flubs a question about his favorite cigarettes. He's got this glazed expression. 
in his eyes, staring off into the distance, and he's carrying this gun that has no butt in it, and so they think this is weird. He came back through the country, going through West Germany. They know that he's been in Russia, but he didn't identify himself as he was going through Germany. It's only now here in London. Lots of things to be suspicious about, but I probably wouldn't have been able to save myself the way M does when he punches the button and drops the glass shield in front of his desk as Bond retracts that gun and tries to shoot him with a blast of cyanide. I didn't quite see this coming. And I love how it puts M in this really precarious situation. Over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com, we're reviewing the movie Skyfall, and I really feel like where we find M at the start of this novel is not dissimilar from where we find Judy Dench in that movie, that he's got to make a difficult choice about 007's future. He can either let it be known that Bond just tried to assassinate him, which would not only get him fired from MI6, he'd probably serve decades in jail. Hate to do that to a colleague and a friend, or he could try to rehabilitate him. And who knows if that can be done? Who knows how badly damaged his psyche is through one year of exposure to KBG mind control? What this M decides is it's best to give Bond a noble death. He's going to give him a mission he doesn't think he'll complete and thus be killed in the line of duty and have this honorable death. Yeah, I'm just getting Judy Dench off of that and all those tough choices she made that ended up killing a lot of her men. So what is this impossible mission that Bond will face after 30 days of receiving electroshock therapy? Well, yeah, if you saw the 1974 Roger Moore movie, the enemy is indeed Francisco Paco Pistols Scaramanga. And he has a third nipple and all of it. But nothing like Christopher Lee. I gotta say, it's refreshing that it's really a different take of this. It's a doppelganger of Bond, is the way I see it, in the way that Christopher Lee was a doppelganger of Roger Moore. But this is more of a, a youthful figure. You know, he's tall, he's got a crew cut, he's Spanish, and he comes from the circus. He really was a trick shot in the circus, went from Europe to America, and then after they killed his pet elephant in a stampede gone awry kind of formative moment, Scaramanga goes rogue and becomes a hired gun. Works for all kinds of people. He worked for the Spangled Mob, who, if you remember Diamonds Are Forever, was the main villains in that, and then he went to Cuba. He actually worked for both Batista and Castro. He doesn't seem politically motivated. He doesn't have ideals that he's fighting for. He's willing to do it, I think, for both money and stardom. He's renowned within the Caribbean as being this legendary gunfighter, and nobody messes with him, and nobody thinks that he can be taken in a gun battle, including him, which is why he's letting his less than 100% 007 try to track him down and take him out. I mentioned Skyfall before, and I do wonder if Javier Bardem's portrayal might be a little bit closer to this literary Scaramanga than what Christopher Lee was doing here. I mean, think about it. You have a Spaniard who's very good at a gun. He's played both sides of the game. He's worked for the quote-unquote good guys and bad guys, and he is renowned to be gay. They don't really play with it too much in the novel. I, I don't know that Fleming knows how to write it. I think it may be part of the reason why Scaramanga hires Bond is maybe there's an attraction there. It could be like the way that it plays out in the movie 
much more explicit in Skyfall. But MI6 psychologists have theorized that because he packs this gun cast in gold and has this third nipple, which is renowned as having sexual prowess, he has some kind of sexual deviance, that he is got an aggressive sexualized persona that is tied in to his bloodlust. That's probably bunk psychology, but that's where Fleming's coming at with the character. And like I said, I kind of see just a trace of it, maybe with the Julian Assange blonde wig on, in what Javier Bardem is doing. This is not the impotent old Christopher Lee, but a young, virile man who is trying to glamorize his phallus. These are their words, not mine. We actually have a character who is telling him these kind of psychological Freudian interpretations in the start of this novel as M reviews the case and sends Bond on his way. Now, I mentioned that this is a first draft and it has all of the flaws of a first draft in that there's a lot of happenstance and coincidence and dueling plots that feel really muddy and probably could be cleaned up so that we understand who the villains are and exactly what they want. I'll try to go through it, but when we get into this story, when Bond is flying down to Jamaica, that's when I notice a dip in the quality and where I feel like Fleming is playing with lots of different ideas about what could be and hasn't quite settled on the story he wants to tell. But what's touching through all of this is 007 seems to be suffering in the same way that Fleming was. Fleming was ailing as he was working on the novel. He had suffered a heart attack many years before and never recovered from it. It was told to him that it came from his vices of drinking and smoking, and he didn't quite know whether he was going to be able to finish this mission to write Man with the Golden Gun. And that parallels Bond. As he heads down to Jamaica, he really is self-doubting, self-medicating with lots of alcohol and smoking, he really has never looked so vulnerable to me. And I think it's a way for Fleming to talk about himself yet again through his beloved creation. Okay, so happenstance. Bond happens to find a letter left at a Kingston airport courtesy desk that was meant for Scaramanga, who just happens to be coming back from Peru, and so he knows where Scaramanga is going next. It's taken him six weeks with no leads, and so he tracks him down to this whorehouse in the southern part of the island. And for reasons that don't totally make sense to me, Scaramanga hires Bond to be his bodyguard slash secretary for an important meeting he's about to have with investors of a hotel he's trying to build. What is it with these Bond villains that want to turn Bond into a secretary? Goldfinger tried it too. It's like, I could kill you, but why don't you fax and make some copies first for my meeting with mobsters? I just never thought that was on Bond's resume, administrative skills. It just kind of plays silly to me. Counter to his macho image. And this is definitely a much more saucy, Connery-esque Bond than where we started. I sense in some of his exchanges, particularly when he meets his former secretary, Mary Goodnight, again on the mission, that he really likes to have the saucy talk telling her she should wear something tight in all the right places with few buttons. That's not the kind of stuff I would have expected from our Bond back in Casino Royale or Live and Let Die. Regardless, Bond takes the mission and meets six goons, five of which come from America, five of which 
are mobsters who are bringing funds in to a project that has stalled because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Caribbean had been a hotbed for American tourism. That has cooled off in the years since the nuclear standoff and Castro coming to power. Mobsters have been looking for other countries in the area to move their casinos that they formerly had in Havana. They're not entirely sure they can trust Scaramanga because he has worked for Castro. They are mobsters, but they're American mobsters. They're patriotic. They don't want to support the KGB. Scaramanga has to wine and dine them for a weekend and convince them to keep the money flowing. And when one of them mouths off and threatens to sue, yeah, they get a golden bullet right through the head. This is a tense meeting. It's not all strip teases and boat rides. There's a lot at stake here and a lot of high tension. Exacerbated by the fact that one of the six people is a European who the others believe is KGB. And they believe it correctly. He never comes out and admits it. He says he's Dutch. He represents Swiss money investing into this hotel. But really, he is a front for the Russians, for the Soviets to have control of this hotel and to have an influx of cash. And we get a kind of garbled, confusing subplot in viewing Scaramanga and Hendrix, the KGB agent's relationship and how he funds Soviet enterprises in the Caribbean. There's all this stuff about Rastafarians selling ganja to America. Fleming tries to make the point that these hippies that are smoking up are being unpatriotic because truly, at the end of the day, their money is going to fund countries and ideologies that are trying to take down their liberties. I really wish that Fleming had the time to integrate this better. I think it's good stuff here, but it all comes in two-person conversations where Bond is down the hall trying to listen in. And while I like the fact that Fleming always does his research and tries to give us information about different kinds of trades, the big battle here is over sugar. That we're going to find out that Scaramanga is telling Rastafarians to burn the sugar fields of Jamaica because that will make the sugar fields in Cuba that much more valuable and thus they can sell it to Russia at a higher rate. That just really, it does not fit in at all with this hotel meeting with mobsters that Fleming is trying to tell. It takes us out of the suspense of the moment as Bond is sitting around sizing up these men and waiting to see when they're going to figure out who he is and if he's going to get whacked. I'm not entirely sure this should have been a Felix adventure either, but he's here too. The CIA pulled him out of reserve. Somehow they got wind of this meeting, and so they send him and another dude down as hotel employees pretending to do the will of Scaramanga while making the case that all of these people are corrupt to the CIA through wiretapping. Ultimately, the KGB agent Hendrix does identify Bond. He wants to off him because Bond is rogue at this point. He did not fulfill his KGB mission, brainwashed, and it all ends up on a battle on a train, which is pretty exciting. I do like this climax. I do see the logic in bringing it here. Mary Goodnight is tied up to the tracks, much like some old silent movie, and Scaramanga is jumping the train when it explodes and the battle spills over into this stinking marsh area that surrounds the tracks. But ultimately, it just feels like bam, 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 everybody dies really quick, and this master marksman never really gets to prove why he was such a legendary threat. Bond's so worried that at one point he snuck into his room and removed the bullet from the first chamber of his gun because he thought it would give him an edge if Scaramanga's first shot was a blank. 
Well, they don't really get the kind of duel I was hoping for here. I don't know that I needed a animatronic museum of death like they give in the movie, but I really did feel like we needed to extend their shootout here at the end. It's basically Scaramanga injured, lying in the swamp, eating a snake and grazing Bond, but ultimately put down pretty easily. And then the story keeps going for 20 more pages. It's about Bond reintegrating to London life and rejecting Mary Goodnight and claiming that he's a bachelor at heart. He did have this Tiffany wife storyline in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I guess it left him feeling like commitment and monogamy is not for him. And he even rejects knighthood. The queen wants to knight him, and he doesn't see a point to it. A rather contrary way to go out. I would have liked to have something maybe a little bit more nostalgic, a little bit more hopeful for Bond. I think we deserved a happy ending with him. Fleming does not give us the final pages that he really feels like he's saying goodbye. I mean, this feels like the end of a novel. It does not feel like the end of a series. And I think that maybe I didn't need to see Bond right off in the sunset with Mary Goodnight, but I would have liked to see him at peace. And yeah, I wanted to see him a knight. I can't deny it. I think it would have been cool. Overall, this is a sloppy first draft of a novel with a really great hook back into it that gets quickly dropped. I wish that we saw Bond struggling more with maybe the KGB implant. Maybe he should have started to fall under Hendrick's control. I mean, maybe they should have done more with where they started with Bond and not been so quick to have him put down these six American mobsters, KGB and Scaramanga. I just think that given more time and better health, Fleming probably would have shaped this to be a really solid adventure. One that probably would not have hit the heights of Casino Royale or From Russia with Love, but would have been on par with Moonraker or Goldfinger. As it is, it's just kind of a curiosity. I rank it kind of around Diamonds or Forever of interesting information, like the villains that he's fighting, but ultimately the story is garbled. But here's the silver lining to the dark cloud that's cast in Bond's death here. We have one more posthumous story. It's not a novel, it's not full length, but there is one more adventure that Fleming gets to tell, and we're going to do it next week. Skyfall is over, the review is out, but we are going to continue Bond here at Books and Nachos next week with Octopussy. And God knows I have some questions about what all that means and how Fleming came up with that name. Hopefully Brock is going to shed some light on that. I'm going to say goodbye to you for now. I'm sure we will meet again in 2013. Keep reading. I've had a blast. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.